My name is Dave Ainsworth. I am the pastor of Citizens. If you're new, we are so glad that you are here. If you're visiting us, uh, we actually have a gift in the back uh, for you. Don't forget to grab one on your way out. You're welcome to it. There's actually a book on miracles. C.S. Lewis's book on miracles is in the bag, um, along with some other things, and that's particularly relevant to today's message. Uh, last week, we began a new sermon series on truth entitled Verily, Confident Knowing and Living. And we were in the Gospels last week. That's where we began when Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? at his trial. And today we'll be in the Psalms and considering broadly truth in creation. Laura Rue is our scripture reader for today, and she will be reading Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. Our scripture reading for today is Psalm 19, chapters 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for your word, um, and we're thankful for creation. Um, thank you for Psalm 19 and scripture that calls us to look more closely at creation and to see you in it. Father, I pray that we would uh, follow the signs of scripture and leave here in wonder of the works of your hands. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, we began our series on truth and knowledge by considering two felt challenges to knowing anything with confidence. And first, the challenge is the overabundance of information. In 2023, there are just too many facts for us to know, and that is overwhelming. Uh, second, the power dynamics at play behind truth telling these days, where it seems like everyone has an angle and it's hard to trust people. And these two challenges could sometimes lead us to respond dismissively to truth-seeking, uh, just as Pilate did with Jesus when he says, what, e what even is truth? Uh, many of us are suspicious of anyone who claims to know the truth. Uh, we're sometimes doubtful we'll ever be able to really know anything with certainty, at least anything concerning the big questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What is good? What is true? Where is hope? But then, just like Pilate, when presented with Jesus, we can't help but be startled out of our nihilism. And so you remember Pilate's second question for Jesus when he became afraid. He says, where are you from? And we have that same response. We can be cynical about truth until we see Jesus standing there willingly crucified. What is truth? Truth is Jesus. It has to be. Truth isn't fundamentally a what, it's a who. But if that's true, we need to go back and reassess our whole understanding of what it means to know. If truth is more who than what, a who behind the what, then our entire experience of life needs to be retooled. Uh, the philosopher Esther Lightcap Meek, uh, she refers to knowledge as friendship with the truth, which is a great phrase. 
Um, It captures the who behind truth in truth. What would it mean if we were friends with the truth? Not discoverers, not conquerors, not dissectors, but friends. How would that transform our questions and our doubts, our convictions and certainties, if we approached truth as a friend or a potential friend? Uh, John Frame similarly uh, links knowledge and friendship, but with God. He says, knowledge designates the friendship between ourselves and God. And so when we know, it's an expression of friendship between us and God. And obedience designates the activity within that relation of friendship. So this knowledge that designates the friendship between ourselves and God, it's not just the knowledge that pertains to God. It's knowledge of everything, not just biblical knowledge, quote-unquote, because God is behind all things. So anytime we know anything, truly, it's an expression of friendship and affirmation of God. Uh, Again, the philosopher Esther Meek, she writes, For Christian believers, it is knowing Christ in communion— that best captures the dynamism of knowing well in every corner of our lives and pursuits. The kind of transformative, interpersonal, face-to-face encounter and communion that all of us experience in the richest moments of our lives affords us the best paradigm of all knowing. Uh, There's a lot of talk today about AI. Uh, A lot of us are sort of trying to learn what it is, artificial intelligence, and that seems really pertinent to our conversation about knowledge. What does it mean that cars now know how to drive themselves? Like, what is knowing mean in that sense? Uh, Why is Gmail so good at finishing my own sentences before I type them? Are you sometimes worried when when it suggests, like, an immediate instant reply that if you use it, the person's going to know? I'm sometimes worried that they're going to be able to suss out that I just... I don't actually, I'm not actually saying thank you. I'm just hitting the button that says thank you. I'm always a little worried about that. Um, I never do that, guys. It's always, all my emails are genuine from my heart. Um, How is it that ChatGPT can do my son's homework, uh, could preach my sermon today? AI has been around for a good while, a long time, of course, but now that it's no longer just working behind the scenes, it's really in front, a lot of us are taking notice and, and wondering about it. Uh, A couple months back, I read a fascinating article online explaining large language models like ChatGBT, but with a minimum of math and jargon. That was literally the title. No math, no jargon. How can I learn about it? Uh, Mike read it with me. It's fascinating. I recommend it. But reading the article, three things uh, struck me. Uh, First of all, these things are ingenious. Um, The idea of large language models, ChatGBT, It is such an impressive use of technology uh, to be able to quantify intuitive thinking. It's it's amazing um, how it's done. And it'll be fascinating to see how technologists and entrepreneurs uh, in Hayes Valley and SF and the Bay Area make use of AI. Second observation, it's so sophisticated, and yet, as I was reading, I couldn't help think, like, this is what babies do. Um, that human brains have been doing this for millennia, this same uh, process. The kids at Citizens started doing this while they were in diapers. They're doing this right now. And so AI is impressive, but it's still a mere replica of God's genius. And then the last observation, which I knew before, but it was more confirmed as I read it, is that a computer can't actually know anything. Not meaningfully not truly, not as things are meant to be known, as we value knowing. So the way large language models work, or one of the things, is they first turn words into a string of numbers. 
uh, relating them in proximity to other words, like a point on a graph, except rather than just two dimensions, it's like 300 dimensions. Um, so for example, in one model that analyzes all of Wikipedia, the word cat, C-A-T, is represented by this string of 300 numbers. Um, and so it's completely meaningless to me, but it means a lot to the computer. And by using 300 numbers instead of just three letters like we do, computers are then able to turn language into this complicated math problem and do math with it. Chat, GPT, like chat, like, like we're chatting right now. AT. GPT. There's not a space. So um, try it out. I actually haven't tried it out personally. Um, so that is um, how it works where it, put, it, it helps computers know how cats, and really the word cat, relates to other words like dogs, pets, kittens, veterinarians in proximity to one another. Um, but the thing is, that's not what a cat is, a string of numbers. This is not what it means to know a cat, to quantify numerically the relationship between C-A-T and every other word in Wikipedia's archive. To really know a cat is to see one and to let it see you, to hold one and pet it and watch it play, to see its tail flicker, uh, to maybe be scratched by it, to see it stretch and nap in the sun, to name one and raise it from kitten to old age. Those are the ways we know cats. And so a computer program cannot really know cats. In the same way, a computer can analyze a novel, but it can never read a novel. It can show you a picture of a watermelon. It might even be able to analyze its chemical makeup. Who knows, maybe eventually, computers will be able to 3D print us a watermelon, and we'll be able to eat it. But computers, which are not persons, embodied image of God persons, they will never know what it's like to grow a watermelon. Feel it, hold it, cut it, taste it, spit out its seeds, drip some of it on its shirt. And that is what watermelons are for. The most important knowledge that we have as human beings, the truths and wisdom and experience and even the knowledge that we hold most dear is deeply personal. It cannot be abstracted. Uh, Roger Scruton once wrote, it's true that we learn a lot from science about how we function, but there's a danger in thinking knowledge of how we function is the full account of what we are. If you're a chemist who is really interested in the optical properties of certain pigments, you could analyze the Mona Lisa and describe it completely, but you would never have mentioned the face, which is the meaning of this thing. Roger Scruton cared a lot about faces, the faces in art, the faces in buildings, the faces of nature. He published a different book called The Face of God. And in it, he laments how modernism defaces reality, truly removes its face. And he felt that reducing knowledge to information about something drained all the life from creation. Life with a capital L was gone when it's defaced. Another philosopher, D.C. Schindler, he wonders whether our reduction of reality to information doesn't contribute to how lonely many of us feel. Uh, without the personal, the information model of knowledge represents a distortion of things, and, this, and at the same time, an impoverishment of our relationship to those things in their actual reality. 
it isolates us even as it pretends to facilitate interaction. It's as if we're walking around every day in lab coats, in hazmat suits, and so we never actually get to touch anything. Uh, I actually feel lonely a lot. Uh, it's a primary struggle of mine, um, something I've been working through for a while. And that's absurd because I'm surrounded by people all the time, and the best people, really wonderful people. And speaking of knowledge, I know, I know objectively as a fact that I am never alone, that Jesus is always with me. And what Schindler is suggesting, though, is that there might be something deficient in my knowledge, not just of Jesus, but of everything, a posture with which I move about the world, what he calls a lonely-mindedness that keeps me from really knowing the presence of things, knowing the presence of others, and knowing the presence of God. This is not the way God created me to know, in isolation, with objectivity, and personally. This is not knowledge which is true knowledge. And so when do we know, then? The Bible, especially the Hebrew Bible, speaks about knowing in almost exclusively experiential and personal terms. Uh, it's why the knowledge in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil came at the point of eating. Uh, sometimes you'll sort of wonder, like, well, when did they first sin? Did they, was it when they decided or somewhere back in their mind? No, it's when they ate of the tree. Not just deciding to obey. Knowledge is ex experiential. It's why Adam was said to first know his wife when he first had sex with her, because knowledge is intimate. It's why only after experiencing redemption was Israel said to have finally known God who, who God was uh, as they entered the promised land. Knowledge is relational, which means it's historical. It's experienced over time. It's dynamic. It's also why Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If we bring our understanding of knowledge as a very objective, head-centered reality, then this verse sounds really lame. I've struggled with it. Like, this is eternal life? To know God? But if knowledge is experiential, if it's personal, to live forever, to really live, is to know God and Jesus. To know truth is to experience truth, to be joined to it, for that truth to become part of you and for you to become part of it. The modern world often thinks of knowledge as breaking something down, taking it apart, analyzing it, and using it for parts. But in scripture, to know is to experience the wholeness of something. Uh, Voss, the New Testament scholar, he talks about two uses of the word truth in the Gospel of John. Uh, we're accustomed to say that there is just one truth and that what is not true must be false. And yet the New Testament knows of two kinds of truth. Uh, that doesn't mean that something can be both true and false, like some people might want to say about uh, Christianity, the historical facts of Christ, so that it's spiritually true while being scientifically false. Uh, what the Bible says is fact is fact. Uh, Moses parted the sea. Uh, Jesus turned water into wine. He died and rose from the grave. People spoke in tongues. All those things are true, historically true. They are not false. 
Nothing can be simultaneously true and false, but some things are not both true and true. And what do I mean? Some things are true because they agree with reality. They're facts. They're true, not false. But some things are true because they are ultimately true. They are perfect and complete, as when Jesus calls himself in John the true light, the true vine, the true food, and true drink. Jesus doesn't mean when he says that that he really is food. No, it's, it's true. He's not false. He's not fake. No, when Jesus says he is the true food, he is claiming to be the food to which all food points. He is the light behind all light. He is the life behind all life. Jesus is truer than true. He is realer than real. He is truth, which is why nothing can be fully known until God is known through it. Romans eleven thirty six. for from God and through God and to God are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Colossians 1.16, for by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Truth is a who question more than a what question. Truth has a face, and that face is Jesus. It's not that we can't ask what questions we need them, they're important, but all what questions should be aimed at filling out the who question. What is true, and how does that truth reflect the reality of who God is in Christ? The Psalms are great teachers for us in how to practice seeing the truth behind the true. How they take the everyday facts of life, how the good and the hard, the beautiful and the ugly, the mundane and the exceptional, and they connect them all to the glory of God. They struggle to find God in their experience. The Psalms, as Holy Scripture, are themselves the revelation of God, and they help us see God's revelation in our own lives, where we can look about our own lives and write our own Psalms. Psalm 19 is a psalm of praise, followed by a petition. And today we're just going to focus on the first six verses of Psalm 19. But the psalm neatly divides into two sections, uh, corresponding to what Christian theologians have often called God's two books. Um, And so the triune God is a speaking God, a revealing God, and he has revealed himself fully by penning two books, uh, the book of creation and the book of scripture, the Bible. Uh, God's revelation in creation is called general revelation because it's available generally uh, to all people everywhere. And God's revelation in scripture is called special revelation because it's given to a specific people who are then supposed to share it with the world. Uh, Sometimes people will divide these two books into natural revelation and supernatural revelation, but that language isn't ideal because all revelation is supernatural. Um, the reality is that everything is supernatural. It all comes from God, from outside of nature, as Psalm 19 illustrates. Uh, Psalm 19 teaches that both revelations are precious to us and are necessary for knowing God and trusting him. And so sometimes Christians will prioritize scripture over creation, but as we'll see, scripture depends on creation. Uh, If there was no creation, scripture wouldn't have anything to say. It wouldn't have anything to work with. 
but without scripture, we don't see creation rightly. And so quoting Aquinas, uh, Bavink says, nature precedes grace and grace perfects nature. It allows us to look back and see its fulfillment. So let's work through this psalm. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 19 teaches us that there is no place and no time where God's face doesn't shine, where God in all his power and wisdom is not felt and glorified. That means that there is no place and no time where God is not to be praised, trusted, and obeyed. Romans 1 repeats this truth in the New Testament, pointing out how it's available to all people everywhere for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, announce the glory of God. The sky, the clouds, the rainbows, the thunder and lightning, the fog, proclaim his handiwork. Literally, they are the work of his hands. No one else could have done this except the one we call God. And this is not a light observation by the psalmist. This is a wonderstruck response to the loud proclamation of the sky. Again, God's glory in the heavens, it's a universal truth. It's heard by everyone. Uh, later in Psalm 19, the psalmist will shift his vocabulary. He will change the name for God to Yahweh uh, in verses 7 on. And Yahweh is the personal name for God, identifying him with Israel. But here in the first six verses, he simply uses the word El, which is God, just the um, generic term used broadly among the people of the ancient Near East. The glory of God in the heavens is not unique to the people of Israel. And so every people group across human history has worshipped the stars. Uh, even today, uh, you look at consistent news coverage from the James Webb Telescope. I mean, every few months on my newsfeed, new pictures show up. And it's because people, even uh, non-religious people, can't help but glory in the heavens. They can't help but marvel at what they see. According to Psalm 19, there's simply no denying the existence of God when one considers the heavens above. There's no adequate explanation apart from God, not just for the existence of a universe like ours, but for its glory. That's what is most striking about the heavens, the glory of the heavens. That is the truth behind the truth. I don't really care what your specific cosmology is, how you explain the facts of the universe, whether it's seven days or Big Bang or multiverse or whatever. I've got opinions. I'm happy to discuss them with you. Believe whatever facts you want to believe, though. Explain to me the glory of the heavens. Do you know their glory? That's why facts, data, information can't do justice to what a cat is. Because cats, whether you're a fan of them or not, are glorious. Cats, like all things in the universe, they are infinitely more than the sum of their parts. And if cats are glorious, how much more glorious are the heavens? So much of our hunt for truth, our anxiety about it, our desire for confident knowing, it stops short of glory. 
when glory is what we need. Glory is what we're looking for. Knowing isn't knowing until you see the glory. You don't know anything. I don't know anything until I see the glory in it. Glory is what truth is for. And glory, ironically, where you are awestruck at the wonder of creation, ironically, that's where confidence is. Where we can say, I don't know much, but I know this is the work of God. Spurgeon cites Aristotle in his commentary on Psalm 19, and so is citing a pagan before the birth of Christ. He says, should a man live underground and converse with the works of art and mechanism, but afterwards be brought up into the day to see the glories of the heavens and earth, he would immediately pronounce them the work of such a being as we define God to be. Uh, yesterday, I was uh, working on my sermon in the afternoon, and I, my office is in like a dungeon, <laughs> a hallway, um, no windows. Uh, and Maggie had to do something in the car, so she like, the door was open, and then the garage door opened, and sunlight flooded in. And I just immediately got up, got up and walked outside. Um, I just was drawn to the wonder of sunlight, the beauty of it, my need for it. And may, so maybe we can deny God if we just stay in our little lonely world, lonely-minded world. But when we come above ground, when we step out of the hazmat suit and spend some time just looking at the sky, there's no denying it. Uh, Joseph Minnick has recently published a book that argues that atheism makes sense to us now um, so that it's almost intuitively true um, in a way that belief in God used to be intuitively true, uh, pre-modern. Um, but now we, we're really tempted and, and to intuit that God does not exist. And he says that the reason that's true is because we live so much of our lives alienated from reality. Uh, he says, atheism is the natural manner in which the world manifests when humans have been alienated from their world and from their history. And humans are alienated, especially from their history, when they are unhomed from others. Uh, the sociologist Peter Berger calls the modern mind the homeless mind. Psalm 19 calls us to look up from our screens, to look up from our news, to look up from our plans, and to stare at the stars and remember that this is our home. This universe, with all its wonder, this is where we live, the home of God's glory. The revelation of God's glory is pervasive and ongoing. It's all the time. Psalm 19:2, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Every day God is revealed, and he's revealed profusely. Speech is poured out like a flood. And what specifically is revealed, his knowledge is revealed. Night to night reveals knowledge. And that's not referring to the night sky revealing facts about God to us um, so that we can learn a lot of details about God, the Trinity, plan of salvation, his holiness, those sorts of things. There's not a Christianized astrology uh, going on here. 
Uh, Rather, in the sky, we see that he is knowledgeable, infinitely knowledgeable. The wildness of the night sky reveals that God is incalculably wise. Any being who could fashion such a fantastic universe must not only be great, he must be wise, no matter how it happened. Uh, Psalm 19 is not a scientific statement, it's poetry. It's not claiming to provide the material cause of the universe, but the ultimate, efficient, functional, final cause is clear. It is God. What does the sky communicate? The glory of God's power and wisdom, and it does it all the time so that you can't get away from it. Psalm 19, 3 and 4, There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, but their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Uh, Bavink's nephew, uh, J.H. Bavink, wrote, the passage, this passage is all about speech without words, witness without words, that makes an impact on people with invisible force and against which they have no defense because it engulfs them all around in its silent majesty. God's glory in the heavens is always sounding, and not just far away either, but throughout the earth to the farthest reaches of our planet. Psalm 139 says we can't get away from it. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. In two weeks, our Sunday service uh, won't be here. It'll be in Golden Gate Park uh, because they're uh, having a function here. The school is. And um, we uh, have got that, that happens periodically throughout the year. And, and we try to make the most of it. And so my hope is to spend the time in Golden Gate Park just engulfed in the silent majesty of the Lord. Uh, to have a guided time of reflection on the world around us. Uh, to see how we can confidently know in our beautiful city, in that beautiful park, God, that we can know God, not just about him, but know him in and through creation. Um, Again, we don't want to just know about God so that we're countering uh, scientific facts with theology facts, where we're just competing. Um, That's not the purpose of Scripture. Uh, That's not the purpose of theology. We're not called to simply know about God, uh, to stay at remove from him. We're called to know him intimately, to know his glory. And if you want to get to know God, get to know his creation. When Adam preached on the Sabbath uh, a couple weeks ago, he instructed us not just to stop and rest, but to delight and worship, to make sure that we arrive at the glory of the world around us. Uh, That's one of the lessons from the psalmist, not just the psalmist, but all the biblical authors. In order to write what they write, to see what they see, they are all detailed observers of creation. And so just read the Bible, any part of the Bible, and notice how dependent they are on metaphor, on reality, on creation, on activity. They are seeking to know God through his creation, The illustrations throughout Scripture, they're not only inspired content to us, which they are, they also serve as an inspired model to us, encouraging us to mine creation for metaphors of our own, to see God's power and goodness and wisdom in creation for ourselves. 
Uh, to follow Joe Minnick's point, maybe my doubts about God have less to do with God's silence and more to do with my distance from his work and his words. Because day-to-day pours forth speech. He is not silent. God is always speaking. But am I putting myself in a place to listen? What are the habits of life which can put me back in touch with what is real, with the truth behind what is true, the glory underneath what we see every day? Herman Bovink writes, To the devout, everything in nature speaks of God. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament proclaims his handiwork. God's voice is in the great waters. That voice breaks the cedars. It rumbles in the thunder and howls in the hurricane. The light is his garment, the heavens his curtain, the clouds his chariot. His breath creates and renews the earth. He both reigns and causes his sun to shine upon the just and the unjust. Herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. The Bible's view of nature and history is supernatural. And again, Bavik is not just speaking about the natural world. He's speaking about history too. The means that God employs in this general revelation are the whole of nature and all of history. The history not only of the human race and the various peoples of the earth, but also of the generations, families, and persons. The history of states and societies, not only, but also of religions and morals and all of culture. Since nothing has existence, durability, except in and through God, nothing is excluded from his revelation. If only our eyes were good, we would see God's attributes shine in all that is and all that happens. Creation, including history, even our own history, is God's divine book authored by God so that we might truly know his glory. Are you listening for the glory? This is not the only book God has written. God has also given us a literal book, the book of Scripture. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And we'll take up the truth of Scripture uh, more directly in a few weeks. But as we close, what is so wonderful, again, about this turn in the psalm is its turn to the personal. Uh, Beginning in verse 7, God is no longer just El, uh, the transcendent, awesome God of the heavens. God is now Yahweh, the imminent one, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who comes and visits, who saves, who redeems, who loves, who makes promises and keeps them. If we only had the heavens, we would only know God's power, his wisdom, his goodness, his wrath. And this knowledge is important, but it's, it's not actually good news for us as sinners. It's not enough. Without Holy Scripture, we would not know God's grace. We would not know his forgiveness. We would not know his long-suffering love. We would not know his son, Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, without Scripture, without the gospel, we would not really know the full truth behind creation. Grace perfects nature. We would not know the face of God because, John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God, though, who is at the Father's side, the Son of God, he has made him known. When the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, then, now, we have seen his glory, 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this blessed knowledge, this complete knowledge, perfected knowledge is seen in Jesus Christ, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, who learned suffering through obedience, who was convicted and crucified under Pontius Pilate for your sins and mine, who was buried, raised three days later from the dead. And this is the most glorious knowledge of all. And what's amazing about the Christian religion is that the supremacy of God's revelation in the gospel in Jesus, it doesn't overshadow creation's glory. It heightens it. It sets it on fire. The incarnation dignifies creation because the eternal God who is spirit, who cannot be seen, made a body for himself. And he died, but then he was resurrected in that body. He is forever creation. We quoted Bavink earlier, but it's worth quoting again. Nature precedes grace, but grace perfects nature. In the gospel, nature and grace, creation and recreation, the world of reality and the world of hope, they're inseparably connected. Because of the incarnation, because of Christ's death and resurrection, because of grace and redemption, because of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth will be forever united. So that when we see beauty today, that beauty is forever. No beauty that you see will be lost. Where we find real goodness, that goodness is here to stay. Our visions of people who find their home in Jesus with flourishing bodies, loving relationships, dynamic neighborhoods, thriving ecosystems, after Christ, these visions are not fantasies. They are prophecies of what will happen. They are real, more real than the brokenness we experience every day, more true than the sad truths. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What will that even be like? If the heavens are glorious now, while they're still in bondage to corruption, so somehow, and I don't understand <laughs> The universe is in bondage. The stars, the sky, the beauty, it's in bondage. What will it be like when they're set free? If even now God's goodness still shines brightly in a fallen world, when cats purr, uh, when drinks are poured, when the breeze blows and friends laugh, if that's life now, what will goodness be like then? As Christians, we not only glory in creation for what it is now, but for what it will certainly become. And so do you know what's true? Not just true, but true. Really true. Forever true. Do you know the who behind the truth? When is the last time that you stopped and considered his glory? when you knew something to the point of seeing the glory. To know truth is to love it. To know God is to love him. 
the truth is here. The truth knows you, and he loves you. The truth sees your glory, the glory that he has given you. He died for that glory. Are you friends with the truth? Do you want to be? He wants to be friends with you. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful for the heavens that they're always there calling to us, beckoning to us, uh, drawing us outside of our offices and obsessions and um, sadnesses. I'm thankful that we live in a city which cherishes sunshine. Uh, uh, that floods the beach when it's finally hot and warm and sunny outside. Father, would you help us to see the glory in those moments? To see the glo your glory in the truth of creation? And not only see it as all peoples everywhere have seen it for all of time, but to see it as Christians who believe in a coming future, a certain future, when everything we know and see and love will finally be set free and will be somehow even more glorious than it is today. Father, we, will we be people who are committed to that truth, that glory, and share it widely, broadly with those around us? Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the true bread and the true wine, that he came to save us and open our eyes uh, to this wonder. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.